Yesterday, the world watched with awe the coronation of Britain's King Charles III. What we saw was an amazing display of stunning pageantry combined with ancient ritual. What we heard was an amazing proclamation of biblical truth virtually throughout that ceremony. The Archbishop of Canterbury opened with 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and then pronounced the great profession of Christian faith, gospel faith, when he said, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And all the people responded, He is risen indeed. Others read extended passages from Colossians, Psalms, and the book of Luke. A representative of the Church of Scotland gave the king a King James Bible. What else could they use? (laughs) But here's what he said as he presented it. Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule of the whole life and government of Christian princes. Receive this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Those are amazing declarations. Then the archbishop administered this solemn oath. Will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law, which goes back hundreds of years now? With his hand on the Bible, the king responded, All this I promise to do. The things I have here before promised, I will perform and keep. So help me, God. And he bowed to kiss the Bible and sat down to sign printed copies of his oath. So do we expect King Charles to begin following the Bible, and all he does every day. We expect no such thing. The professions that were included in that ceremony were there because it's tradition. It's because that's what they have to say to coronate a king. That's what he has to say in order to be crowned. How much of it did he actually mean? 
How much of that did the prelates of the Church of England mean and what they said? Sadly, very little. So that what the world actually witnessed yesterday, hundreds of millions of people tuning in, what the world actually witnessed was a phenomenon that affects people all around the world. This is not just a problem with King Charles. This is not just a problem in England, whose churches this morning were probably just as empty as they have been for decades. The problem is one we all share. And that is that our profession of faith in Christ and our profession of allegiance to him, what we say in our determination to, to do what God says, often far outruns the reality. Even true believers... I have to acknowledge that how I live comes up quite short from what I say and even what I believe. Now, the Lord anticipated this problem a long time ago and early on made provision. We're going to read about an early instance of such provision, one that happens to have uh, very clear biblical parallels with what we are going to do around the Lord's table this morning. And so in that sense, this is going to be instructive to us. It's a historical account, but it includes lasting biblical truth. The message here is that because redemption is designed to affect daily life, redemption from God affects daily life, you must decide to follow the Lord every day. And still we are going to find that to be a challenge. Let's look at then in this passage what God has set up in order to help his people bring actual practice into closer connection, a closer match to our our profession of faith. Verses 37 through 42, this very day of redemption, redemption for God's people, Uh, from the land of Egypt, paralleling our redemption from sin through the cross of Christ, the day of redemption determines your direction in life. Salvation then begins a life of walking with God. Uh, This passage we have already read and are looking at this morning uh, probably did not make the headline news uh, the next day after it took place. 
in, con- in comparison with, with the plagues that God brought on Egypt, culminating in the death of the firstborn just recorded earlier in this chapter, uh, c- compared with such highlight events, the dramatic uh, final uh, submission of Pharaoh to actually let God's people go, this almost sounds anticlimactic. But it isn't. This is really the culminating point. Everything before this was God's provision. But God's people have to respond to it. It needs to change how they live. And that is clear here in verse 37 with the very first step that they had to choose to take, which is embarking then on this journey setting the direction of life, a life of walking with God. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses. That's where they were. That's their starting point. That's in the heart of Egypt. They journeyed there to Sukkoth. We're actually not quite sure where Sukkoth is, but if it was just an hour's journey It's probably still well within the boundary of Egypt. Probably there is where they had their first meal outside of their homes that they had just left. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Why do we need to know that? This is a community. This is a community that verse 38 tells us is varied. A mixed multitude also went up with them. We, this, this doesn't tell us exactly what they were mixed with. What's the mixture? Uh, is it other ethnicities? Maybe it's people that weren't even Jewish? Maybe it includes people that were not so convinced they wanted to go on this journey, but got caught up in it somehow. All kinds of possibilities here, but it lets us know there's variety in this group. Variety that includes some that are weak, some that are strong, some that are ready to march for 12 hours, and others that couldn't have the stamina for that. And couldn't you just imagine there are some that thought, well, uh, we're going to go on ahead and, uh, and, and we'll meet you at the destination when you finally uh, can catch up. But that's not how this works. God's plan is that the whole community move forward together. Those that are stronger assisting those that are weak This mixed multitude also includes, uh, or the whole group includes very much livestock, both herds and flocks and herds, indicating that they were bringing the stuff of life along with them. And that stuff further encumbered them and slowed their progress. But they they had to bring uh, all that they had. They had to still have regular life going on which can, as we all know, be very distracting. So already we learn that the challenges are great in this new life of walking with God. We also find in verse 39 that the resources are sparse. 
they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt. I think that means that first night they uh, baked unleavened cakes. And why unleavened cakes? Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. I mean, this might be it. Uh, We had this much dough. We could make this much bread. And after this, what? After this, they had no idea that God planned to begin sending manna. That God was going to meet the need. That they were going to be dependent on him. Every day they live for everything they need which is exactly the way God's people are today. Might look to us at times like we are a little more independent than that. But that's a falsehood. That's a misperception. Our resources also are sparse. We need his grace. Salvation begins this life of walking with God. This is the reality of what it is, and it includes these challenges. But it also includes something else, emphasized in verses 40 to 42. Salvation concludes a life of bondage and sin. That's what life has been. Embarking on this journey of faith, And walking with God is leaving behind the sin of the past. So we get this time uh, chronology note. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. As far as we know, no particular significance to that number, except that it's uh, what God said they would uh, be staying there when he first told this uh, uh, told about this to Abraham 430 years that's a long time why did God wait so long it's his timetable God's people have to submit to his plan as it unfolds a daily experience for us as well God follows his timetable and everything unfolds according to his plan At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. He's going to use that phrase again in the next verse, out from the land of Egypt, emphasizing what they're leaving behind, this bondage to sin, this living in sin indulging in sin. Salvation is leaving that behind. No longer content to serve self, to please self in that way. Verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord. Here's a statement about how this all took place in the first place. It's because of God's grace. A night of watching by the Lord. What's he watching? 
Don't picture him here as a passive bystander. Oh, this is good. This is good. He's the enabling watcher. He's the one that so moved upon Pharaoh's heart to give them the opportunity to go. He's the one that directed that this, the slaying of a lamb would be sufficient to cover the households of his people so that no firstborn died in those homes. This is the God who had all his plans in place to provide for their needs all along this journey into the wilderness of this world. That's what he's watching. He's making sure that they have what they need, that they're going the direction they're supposed to. He's providing, he's protecting, he's guiding exactly as he does today. Now, for the first time, we get another aspect of the response of God's people. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What's he talking about? That's the Passover. That's God's designed plan. And that becomes a key element in the success of this project of walking with God in the wilderness of this world. There's a reminder that's inherent in this recurring ceremony of Passover. Well, first, what would you think of someone who saw all that God did in Egypt, witnessed his power, his grace, and even saw the people beginning to move forward to leave the land of Egypt? And he's excited about all this, and he, and he believes this God. But he decides to stay in Egypt unwilling to leave behind the sin characteristic there. All right, there is a problem with his profession of faith, don't you think? Leaving it behind, moving forward in walking with God and following him. The two have to go together. You have to have both. So this is a call, first of all, to take that step. The step that says, not just I believe Jesus died for me, but the step that says, and I commit myself to follow him. To leave behind by his grace the sin that has characterized my life. I am committed to following him. Well, still we have challenges. That commitment can begin to fade in memory as everyday life engulfs us. And so we continue now in verse 43 with God's plan 
to help keep that commitment current. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. First of all, no foreigner shall eat of it. No foreigner means nobody in the outside, nobody who's not a part of this, nobody who hasn't put their faith in this God and taken this step to follow him, who has committed himself in that way. No foreigner in that sense. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. That is, there's an exclusion here. God restricts participation in this Passover ceremony designed to help God's people recommit themselves to him. There can be no recommitment if there's been no commitment in the first place. So he decides whom to exclude. That a a slave that is bought with money may eat of it after you have circumcised him, says, this is not a closed door. If somebody's not already committed to it, it's not too late. Come on. And in our context, trust Christ. Accept him as your savior. Put your faith in him. Take that first step of trusting Christ. And now you can be a part of this as well. In verse 46, God decides what this ceremony is going to look like. And he gives just a few stipulations here. It should be eaten in one house. You should not take any of it, any of the flesh outside of the house, and you should not break any of its bones. Of course, the emphasis on the lamb for each household. Why not? Take it outside the house. Well, it could be here. There's a, uh, the, it includes the idea that you can't take your salvation and give part of that to somebody else. They've got to have their own relationship with Christ. Now, you can tell them about it. You can encourage them or urge them. But you can't give them some of yours, some of what you have. These last few verses, God expects participation in his ceremony. This is not optional for God's people. It's not optional because being a part of the challenges that dim our sense of commitment to him isn't optional either. We're all subject to that. All God's people need this recurring reminder that God has designed. Passover in the Old Testament. The Lord's table meets this need in our day. And he demands a prepared heart. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. That's the preparation. You've got to be saved. You have to trust Christ. You have to commit yourself to following him. Then he may come near and keep it. 
He shall, it shall, uh, he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. That's not so much a, an, a statement of equity as it is a statement of absolute requirement. There is no participation without having committed yourself to this Lord. Verses 50 and 51 is really a summary of this whole passage. It combines the idea of what God has done with what God's people must do in response. First, the people. Verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. They decided to obey. We'll follow God. We'll turn from sin. By God's grace, we are going to follow the way that he has marked out. Verse 51 has the basis for that life-changing decision. What is that? It's what God has done. Emphasizing again on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. It's all by his grace. Our part is to respond in faith and obedience. Last week, I returned to an optician that I had met recently. I had gotten a new pair of glasses, and I was going back, is actually for the third time, to get an adjustment. They were really good, but not quite there. I can be, uh, ah, some might call it picky. But I had called ahead and made sure he would be there, and my past experience told me it, it was this time of the day, there's hardly anybody else there, because I also wanted to talk to him about the gospel. We had already established a bit of a, a relationship, and uh, so I got there, and, and it was perfect. There, were, there was nobody else uh, no other customers in the store. In fact, two other associates were waiting in the wings, ready to pounce on anybody else who entered. So he was free. And after he had made the adjustment, I, I, uh, I handed him this track, and, uh, and I was ready to start talking to him about it. And he looked at it, and a, a warm smile came across his face. And he said, I know this track, and I believe this gospel. He said, but I'd be happy to keep this and hand it off to somebody else. Well, that opened up a, an extended discussion as he filled me in about his church, about his uh, family, uh, his children, where they, what ages they were, and he just was taking delight in describing all of this to someone who appreciated hearing it. And at one point, he said, yes, my wife next year will be celebrating our 20th anniversary. 
I said, well, congratulations. You see, we've already got our, our, wed- our, uh, our anniversary trip all planned out. I said, wow, that's impressive. A whole year in advance, and you've got it all set. He says, oh, yes, we take our anniversary seriously. We celebrate because we feel that that is important to keeping our marriage relationship strong. I walked away convinced this man is walking with God. Keep the relationship strong. You need a recurring reminder. That's what is before us now. This is not extra. This is not uh, uh, ritual, although we will follow the biblical pattern. This is essential. This is an opportunity to recommit yourself to the Lord. Again, if you aren't sure he's your Lord, it's not too late. You can right now ask him to save your soul, cleanse your sin, be your savior. But it's an opportunity as well for, uh, that's important to you personally and to our church as a whole. Focus on your commitment to the Lord. That's what God designed this to accomplish. Take this opportunity to confess your sin and to ask God to help your daily life this week match your profession of faith and allegiance to him. Let's bow for prayer to do that. Father, thank you that forgiveness of sin and eternal life is available to all who will trust Christ, turn from sin, and follow him. Father, we pray today for saving grace for those who are still lost in sin. Father, we pray for grace as well for those who have experienced salvation. Father, find that it is a continual challenge to keep that commitment at the forefront of our minds. Father, would you use the Lord's table today to accomplish that purpose, that we might recommit ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.